If you're gay, then you're gay. Don't pretend that you're straight. You could be who you are any day of the week. You are unlike the others, so strong and unique. We're all with you. If you're straight, well, that's great. You can help procreate and make gay little babies for the whole human race. Make a world we can live in where the one who you love's not an issue. Cause we're all somewhere in the middle. We're all just looking for love to change the world. Ah. And we're all here in it together. Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to the October 28th, 2019 Halloween edition of IMRU Radio Magazine. (laughs) The world's longest-running lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender radio show, now including the queer and intersex communities in our mission statement and proudly promoting our allies. Hello, I'm Michael Taylor Gray. And I'm Chloe Corcoran. Tonight we converse with the world's greatest skeptic, the amazing Randy, visit with a hot crypt keeper, and get the 411 on horror from Clive Barker. But first, the honest tea. A common refrain among sports fans is, we're number one. Tell me about the article you found. Well, I found an article in The Advocate, the title of which is, The Nations with the Highest Levels of LGBT Acceptance and Lowest. And... You'd think, well, maybe we're in the top five. That would be great. Maybe the top 10. I'd like the top 10. The top 12. We're dropping a little. The top 20. Okay. We're number 23. Ooh. 23 out of 141 countries. Are you surprised? No, I'm not. I mean, I wish I was surprised. (laughs) But coming in at number one is the island nation of Iceland, known for its natural beauty known for being the home of pop star Bjork and for being the first country to have an LGBT prime minister on anything but a fill-in basis, lesbian Johanna Sigurdartater. It took me a while to get that down. Well done. (laughs) Thanks. Now, nearly all of the most accepting nations were in Europe, with the Netherlands, Sweden, Andorra, and Norway rounding out the top five. What do you think is holding us back right now? Our current political climate, our current division as a nation, I think we're very, very divided politically. It started, I think, during the the Reagan administration in the 1980s, and it's just built from that time forward. I just noticed that the 1980s became a very me-centric kind of decade. This is before your time, dear. Mm -hmm. And it just kind of spiraled from there, and it uh, it, it just has had a latch onto our society and our culture. And I think that that's when I noticed that politics started to get progressively more divisive in nature. And one of the things I worry about is we spend so much time phrasing this as a political issue, a political climate, when really it's not. It's a human rights issue. It is a social acceptance issue. That shouldn't be political. That's something that should just be done. We talk about this side of the aisle, that side of the aisle. We're just trying to exist and survive, and it brings to mind a case of 
Luna in Texas, a seven-year-old transgender girl who is in the middle of a custody case and has now being granted joint custody with the father and the mother, the mother who is supportive, the father who is claiming that accepting a transgender child and allowing them to follow medical advice is child abuse, is troubling. And those are the things I'm trying not to get emotional here, but it's very difficult. So this father who is firmly entrenched in his beliefs is literally damaging this child psychologically. Psychologically and physically, because the child is not allowed to take puberty blockers. Now, puberty blockers are not chemical castration. Puberty blockers do not cause long-lasting effects or damage. All they do is delay puberty. If the child decides, you know what, I'm not trans, you can go back and have your puberty. It's fine. But if you end up going through puberty, that's something that can't be erased. That has things that have a real physical toll on your body and really changes things for the rest of your life. So the father wants to wait until this girl is 18 to make her own decision. And by then it's too late in a lot of cases. So, Chloe, I want to ask you personally, because we've talked about the why and how of things. If that father was in this room with us right now, how would we appeal to him? What might we say to him to help break down that wall a bit, to maybe expand his view and at least listen to where you're coming from because you're directly related to what's happening here. You, nobody has more of a personal stake in this than you. Right. As a transgender woman, I've seen the effects that this can have on somebody's life and because I've seen it in myself. But with this person who is being supported by the governor of Texas, being supported by the right-wing politicians and many other people, I don't know that there would be any reasoning, but I think that the right track is to be visible be honest, be open, and show your life and show yourself and just tell your story. And that's all you can do. I mean, some of these people just don't want to listen. And I understand it's difficult for a lot of parents to understand that their child is transgender because there may be a grieving process that goes along with that for what you wanted for your child. But don't grieve your child because they're still here. Yeah. So that's something... You know, we talk about the rankings, then we have things like this going on. But we also have a recent Supreme Court case that discussed the ability and rights of LGBTQ community members. And that's still ongoing. We had some hearings and now we're waiting to see what happens next. Well, we found uh, a wonderful article from your graduate college. Yes. Where would that be? That was Northeastern University in Boston, Massachusetts. Yeah, and they have a wonderful article from the 24th uh, titled, How Might the LGBT Cases in Front of the Supreme Court Affect the Workers of Tomorrow? Now, people who are lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgender still need to find and keep regular employment, something that's easier said than done. Now, more than half of the U.S., 26 states lack explicit workplace protections for LGBT employees, according to the Movement Advancement Project, an organization that tracks the laws affecting LGBT people. Which is problematic on a lot of different levels. And we're looking at that being struck down at the federal level, too, as I understand it. So we're talking about where do we rank in acceptance? And I wonder, you know, our ranking is 23. What is happening in these other countries? And, of course, we know we have some idea of what's happening in the other countries. But it's scary to think about. It really is. 
Yeah, I mean, I think who else was? Let's see, let's see, let's go back to that article just for a second. Yeah, uh, now the United States came in at 23 in the most recent findings, rising from number 25 in the 2004 to 2008 data. So that you know, we're making some improvement. Malta, Uruguay, Argentina, and Australia all ranked higher than the U.S. in the most recent list. Now, keep in mind that the findings looked at the survey data from respondents who were asked their beliefs on the morality of homosexuality, the desire for an LGBT coworker, and the acceptability of discrimination. The acceptability, Chloe's edition, slash desire for, the ability to discriminate. I found the wording of the, the categories, I found it fascinating. Morality of homosexuality, desire for an LGBT coworker, and acceptability of discrimination. That last one really sticks with me. Yeah. And one of the things that was noted in the article from Northeastern University was we talk about employment protections, but it's also really hard for people to get employment. And maintain employment. And maintain. Yeah. So they are doing an amazing thing. Now, they are holding what they call a Reach Out LGBTQA plus career conference this year. And as they were noting, the fact is trans people and trans women in particular just are not participating in the economy right now in the ways that people who represent the rest of our career acronym are participating. The two-day event focuses on the specific perspectives and concerns of lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, gender, nonconforming, non-binary, intersex, and asexual students who are on the verge of entering the workforce. And I'm sure they have a lot of questions. I've never heard or seen anything like this in my lifetime. I think this is amazing that this conference is happening. I think it's fantastically supportive, and it's a recognition by the university that things are different for this cohort of people, Mm -hmm. for this cohort that wants to enter the workforce. Do I come out on my resume? How do I frame certain things on my resume? How do I understand if an employer is going to be supportive of me and who I am as an individual? Those aren't easy questions, and hopefully they're being tackled through this conference. Absolutely. And we have to, as an LGBTQI plus community, we have to be aware of what these statistics are. We have to be aware of where they're headed and whether they're rising, whether they're falling, and how we can impact them. Because according to GLAAD, an organization that tracks LGBT issues, compared to the general population, transgender people are twice as likely to be unemployed. For transgender people who aren't white, the statistics are even more bleak. They're four times as likely to be unemployed. And I think that's something we need to again point out. If you listen to the show regularly, you will hear me say it often and loudly. There is an epidemic of murder against black trans women as well. It has been declared that. And we need to uplift members of our community who don't have the same advantages as some of us. When I first transitioned, I thought, well, there goes all my privilege. And I've evolved a lot since then and realized I'm white and I have a lot of other privilege with my education that I'm very fortunate to have that a lot of people didn't have access to. We need to use our tools to make these numbers better for all of us across the board in the LGBTQIA community. Absolutely. And I think they encapsulated it really just brings that point to a wonderful conclusion for this conference at Northeastern is that the reason they're doing this reach out conference is that intergenerational knowledge sharing. And it's important to have very candid, thoughtful conversations with people who are on the verge of entering a standard workforce. It's important that we share this information with each other and we do it across generations and we don't just, you know, 
hoard our knowledge away and just hope hope that the kids learn. You know, we've got to share it. We've got to help each other out. We've got to reach out side to side, front and back. We've got to really be all encompassing in, in how we're approaching uh, our community and, and beyond. It's all about togetherness. It's all about community. It's all about standing together. And look what we can accomplish when we do stand together. Let's take a look at the UK and something that happened there recently with one of the U.S.'s largest fast food restaurants trying to find a home in the U.K. Michael Taylor Gray, what happened? Well, Chick-fil-A, the third largest fast food business in the U.S.A., had just opened its first store you know, they're in Reading in the UK. And within moments of opening, a group called Reading Pride, uh, which, you know, believes that the company's donations to organizations such as the Fellowship of Christian Athletes of God and, and the Salvation Army indicates unforgivable bigotry. They said, we cannot have this. And they immediately protested. And it's being shut down. They're, they were literally told to, dare I say it, cluck off. <laughs> I like it. So their lease is not being renewed, and a lot of people on, let's, we'll call it political again, on a, a specific side of the aisle are very unhappy about this. But why? Um, a boycott was used. Boycotts are effective. The Chick-fil-A is known for donating to anti-LGBTQIA hate groups, and why would we not boycott them? Why would we serve them? Now, Chick-fil-A has gone on to say, we're open to everyone. We accept everyone. <laughs> Their donations prove otherwise. But they want us to come in there. You know what, Chick-fil-A, you can keep your chicken. You can hang on to that. But apparently you can't keep it in the UK. This is just my personal opinion, and I'm stating that up front. I don't think the chicken's that good. Am I wrong in saying that? I don't know. We'll have to let our listeners decide. But... I mean, I know that's not the point, but come on, if it was fabulous chicken, maybe they'd fight a little harder to be a little more inclusive. Well, I don't think any chicken is worth the price of hate. <laughs> you got, you yes. got that right. Now, let's look at Chick-fil-A's official response okay. to this boycott. Chick-fil-A, the third largest fast food chain in the U.S., as I mentioned, they responded graciously to the bad press, according to this article. We hope our guests in the U.K. will see that Chick-fil-A is a restaurant company focused on serving great food and hospitality and does not have a social or political agenda. Let that sink in. A spokesman said prior to the lease being terminated, we are represented by more than 145,000 people from different backgrounds and beliefs, and we welcome Everyone. Again, let that sink in. Everyone. Everyone. Yeah. And, and yet we're finding these donations that just go against the grain of what they say. It's problematic on so many different levels. Michael Taylor Gray, do you still go to Chick-fil-A? Still go. Have you been? No. Okay. I think I went once. Well, And then I found out what was happening. And I went can't do that. They are ubiquitous in the South, and you oh, did yes. spend a lot of time there. I so. did. Never have. The only time I ever went there was, uh, th there's one at Sunset, and I believe Highland in Hollywood. Yes, there is. I have to but drive I, by it often. I put my blinders on when I go by. Well done. Well done. <laughs> well, Michael Taylor Gray, this was the first show I have ever referred to myself in the third person, and I'm not sure how I feel about myself with that. So maybe we should wrap things up. How would Chloe feel about that? That's a great question. I'll have to ask her, and there I go again. And that's 
The Honest Tea. Oscar Wilde's Fairy Tales, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. Irish poet and dramatist Oscar Wilde is best known for his whimsical plays, Lady Windermere's Fan, and The Importance of Being Earnest, as well as his novel The Picture of Dorian Gray. Born in Dublin in 1854, Oscar Wilde was the son of a physician who treated the Irish poor in exchange for their village folk stories. Oscar sometimes accompanied his father, soaking up this literature of the country folk. Oscar's mother wrote anti-English poetry during the Great Irish Potato Famine, proving herself a champion of justice for the weak and depressed. With these profound influences, Oscar published a book of fairy tales in 1888 titled The Happy Prince and Other Tales, originally written for his two sons, Cyril and Vivian. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded in the studios at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia and read by volunteers like me, Mike Heinerman. This is David Dean Botrell, and you are listening to IMRU. But it doesn't prove that there are gay vampire witches operating a sex club on the island. Darkness falls across the land that midnight hours close at hand. Preachers crawl in search of blood to terrorize y'all's neighborhood. And whosoever shall be found without the soul for getting down must stand and face the hounds of hell and rot inside a corpse's shell. Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. And I'm Chloe Corcoran. Halloween is more than a night to dress as a slutty nurse or a buff Gandhi. It's a time for ghosts and magic. But is any of that real? Our next guest has spent a lifetime debunking such things. We give you Steve Pride in conversation with the amazing Randy. Launching his career in 1945... James the Amazing Randy entertained millions of people around the world with his remarkable feats of magic, escape, and deception. But when others started to label their tricks as real magic, Randy began to challenge their claims, becoming in the process the world's best-known skeptic. James, have you always been amazing? Oh no, I used to be astonishing, but it doesn't fit on a marquee very well. You dropped out of high school in 1945 to become a magician. Why? I was one of those child prodigies. I was able to stay out of grade school. I just had to go in to write the examinations. This is in Canada. And many, many years ago, I'm 86, figure it out. And uh, in doing that sort of thing and not being in school and having the ability to wander about, 
I uh, would occasionally attend a theater, a matinee in most cases, and I got to go to the casino theater and see Harry Blackstone Sr., who was the reigning magician of the day, touring uh, the United States and Canada regularly every year. And uh, I can tell you, when he did the levitation of Princess Azra, where he made the lady float up into the air, well, that was magical to me. And I began to doubt whether I would be an organic chemist or an archaeologist, as I had planned at that time. I was 12 years of age, and I sort of took a turn, maybe for the worse. I guess archaeology and chemistry lost me, but uh, show business sure got me. But in the 1970s, you became more famous as a debunker of false psychic claims. I'm not a debunker. I don't accept that terminology because that would mean that I went into an investigation saying, this is not true, and I'm going to prove to you it's not true. So when I go into these things, though with a certain amount of difficulty, I have to say, I just don't know. Let's find out, shall we? In most cases, I do know, but I saw the damage that it was doing. People's belief in the paranormal powers and, and psychic forces and such. And I conferred with a great number of them who would even come to me voluntarily and ask me about something I did in the program. And they'd say, well, I enjoyed what you did so-and-so and such-and-such. Such. But when you told the lady her telephone number, that was real ESP, right? And I'd always say, no, 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 there's a way of doing that. Well, what is it? No, I'm sorry, I can't reveal the secrets of the conjurers after all, because uh, this is a secret brotherhood, sisterhood now. We've got a lot of female magicians in the trade, I'm happy to say. But that's the way I had to, to do it. It was very awkward when they started to believe that I actually had the powers. Well, people that believe these people want to believe them. Let's change that statement, though. Instead of just want to believe them, they need to believe them. That's the important verb here, and I always differ with people who say the other one. They actually need to believe it because they want something supernatural in their lives. They want some magic in their lives. You don't need magic, folks. You need the facts. And science has the facts. That's where you'll find the facts of how the world really works. You're probably most famous for exposing New Age psychic and spoonbender Uri Geller. I have been his nemesis for years. I gave that up years ago, though, because I showed that he was a total fake that he just couldn't do what he said he was doing. And I have over 150 examples of where he has said on television, I don't know how to do tricks. I don't know any of those things that the magicians know. What I do is real. And he says it exactly that way on our film as well. And that gets a laugh from the house because they don't realize that he's a fellow who bends spoons. Now, wait a minute. What's your profession, sir? I bend spoons. Why? Because it makes me a lot of money. That's a good reason. Ben's spoons, this is an art. This is a talent that humanity needs. Any fool can bend a spoon. It's not that difficult. Well, some spoons are exceptional, but most spoons you can bend. You wouldn't want them to come to dinner, obviously. No, no. Be very careful. Don't use the best silverware. Tell me about your foundation. The James Randi Educational Foundation was set up many years ago. In order to have an actual organization that could, uh, first of all, we offer a million-dollar prize to any of the psychics who can come forth and actually prove they are psychic, you'd think there'd be a lineup outside the studio on the street right now, wouldn't you think so? I didn't notice any lineup. So we have offered that prize for all these years. And so far, no takers. Now, some people have tried, and I believe that these are the people who really believe they have psychic powers. But when we put them through the test... 
They failed miserably, and then they're always surprised. That is, the real truth-sayers who really believe they have the powers. The others don't come anywhere near us, of course. Someone I haven't talked to yet is Amazing Randy's amazing partner of nearly 30 years, Davy Pena, a.k.a. the artist Jose Alvarez. How did you two meet? We met at the Fort Lauderdale Public Library. I was uh, painting ceramics at that point that had space imagery, and Randy came over and he started asking me if I was interested in space imagery. And I said yes, and we ended up spending the whole afternoon together. And I had a telescope at home, a Questar telescope, and I invited him over to the house to actually see the planet Saturn. And Davy, you've stuck around for nearly 30 years. Well, Amazi is the most incredible human being I've ever known. And we have a lot of things in common. And I have found through him an incredible sense of compassion. I have met incredible, interesting people, and he's a a really interesting person. So um, through the years, the love has grown more and more. Randy, you came out as gay in 2010 at age 81. What prompted that? I didn't have any need to do so before that. Remember, when I was a teenager in Canada, that would never have been done. It absolutely wouldn't have happened, or you'd probably be stoned by the neighbors. But the point is, I moved to the United States and found it much more uh, acceptable of that lifestyle. And uh, I eventually got around to the point where, in my 80s, I said, it's about time. And I came out with it with no problem whatsoever. However, I remember one very pivotal moment. We were watching the movie Milk with uh, Sean Penn. And after the movie, Randy was very pensive. Then the following day, he handed me out a piece of paper that he had written the night before. He said he couldn't sleep. And when I read it, it was basically his coming out letter. And I got very nervous. I said, are you sure you want to do this? And he said, well, after seeing the movie, I just thought very hard about the importance of coming out and that I must. And I think that... As a person who has based his life work about telling the truth, I think it was a necessary step at that moment for him to do, and he took it, and uh, he received a great uh, appreciation for another lot of people. Well, the response was, well, not terribly surprising to me, but the result was very gratifying. By postal mail and on the Internet, letters just poured in, supporting me, saying, it's well that you did it, and that was very brave. And, oh, it wasn't all that brave. It was just time to do it. What's the best thing about being an out gay man at 86 years old? <laughs> the best thing? Well, you had the satisfaction of knowing that uh, you didn't hesitate to tell the world when it was perfectly safe to do so. There's not much danger in that, but it's the agreement that I got. The people who wrote me and uh, said congratulations. Now, you couldn't tell from many of them whether they themselves were gay or not. And that's not the important thing. The important thing is that uh, from the public in general, I got great approval and acceptance. Acceptance is the word here, I think. That was most pleasant to me, to know that uh, I could generally trust the public to come to their senses and look what has happened concerning the gay movement. Now, in just recent years, both Davy and I have been pretty astonished by how out this thing is now and how reasonably acceptable it is to most of the public. This has been a conversation with Davy Pena, a.k.a. the artist Jose Alvarez, and James, the amazing Randy. This is Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. If you could read my mind, love, what a tale. 
Next, Steve Pride talks with a gay man who is less skeptical and knows where the bodies are buried. Tyler Cassidy, the gay owner of the Hollywood Forever Cemetery, has model good looks and guardianship of the graves of Hollywood royalty like Cecil B. DeMille and Rudolph Valentino. Hi, my name is Tyler Cassidy, and I am president of Hollywood Forever and Fernwood Cemeteries. So are you technically a crypt keeper? You know, I started calling myself a cemeterian, but I don't think that's a real word. So undertaker's good, cemetery owner, but then I also have a preschool just to round things out really? in Mill Valley. At each location here and in Mill Valley, we have Cemeteries, funeral homes, crematories, although the location in Marin County, Fernwood, is actually a natural burial. It's adjacent to Golden Gate National Recreation Area, which is that gigantic reserve. And there we bury people naturally, uh, sometimes in shrouds, no metal, no embalming, and they're buried in a natural setting. And then we use a restoration ecology to restore the grounds as part of the burial. How does a nice boy from the Midwest end up owning a cemetery in Hollywood? Well, we had sold all of our family funeral homes. And I had an idea because when I had gone back after college for what was supposed to be a visit, I ended up making uh, video photo montages of uh, the deceased and showing those at their funerals. That's what I could relate to in terms of a funeral home because it seemed like that was a good way to remember someone. And more than an embalming art, it was actually a form of memorial where people, I saw them have the most catharsis and the most emotion. And then when the computer age came, I designed some software in New York where cemeteries and funeral homes could use our software to have archival systems at their cemeteries to pull up biographical information and photos. And so I was actually out here to present to the two biggest cemeteries, Forest Lawn right next door and Rose Hill. And they at the time were speaking of the dilapidated, derelict, and twice padlocked Hollywood Memorial Park. And I stopped there on my way to the airport, and it was El Nino, and the place was completely dilapidated and flooded and in great disrepair, but I found it just beautiful. It was romantic. It seemed to me the oldest place in this city that to me at the time seemed just all newness, and it was love at first sight. But still, back then, no one was dying to get in there. Nobody was dying to get in. In fact, you couldn't die to get in there unless you owned property before they lost their license. But talk about it today. Today, it is more than a cemetery. We are a very operational, functioning cemetery. We serve so many diverse aspects and so many diverse elements of our community, but in different ways. In a funereal and cemetery way, we serve the Russian Jewish community of Hollywood. We serve a lot of our Latino population because that's our demographics in L.A. 
We serve a lot of the Armenian population of Glendale, and those are the people that still believe in burial. We also do a lot of cremation business because that's the Anglo trend in California. And then we have, I think, an exceptional program of being uh, now, after 14 years, an uh, intrinsic part of the cultural fabric of L.A., if I can say that. For instance, we just had our annual Dia de los Muertos. That started as a Mexican tradition, but now we'd say it's an Angelino tradition of art and remembrance and performance. And then we also have an ongoing cultural series of plays. Uh, we have our summer Chinespia series, which celebrates the great films, both modern and classic and black and white and even silent. And that's every Saturday throughout the summer. And then uh, we open ourselves even to uh, a program that's called Comedy is Dead. We also have art exhibits. So as we experimented and opened ourselves, the city kind of saw what I, I saw when I first walked in. Once it was given um, a fresh look and a fresh name that it was culture, that there was something that was intrinsically cultural about this place. Tell us where the bodies are buried. Well, it depends upon your generation, I guess. I mean, it begins with Rudolph Valentino, the great film star, and we still have his annual memorial, which... This year, I think 300 people turned out, which is pretty incredible. Jump forward, we've got uh, Johnny Ramon, and we have such varied characters as one of the Darrens from Bewitched, as well as his boss. We have Miss Estelle Getty, Mr. Blackwell from Mr. Blackwell's List, and then we have those who are famous among their family and friends. But so much of old Hollywood is there. Marion Davies... Jane Mansfield's cenotaph is there. The great epic filmmaker Cecil B. DeMille, both Douglas Fairbanks Jr. and Sr. are there in the great Fairbanks Memorial. And it's amazing how many people who were part of the business, either doing scores or behind the camera or doing costumes like Adrian. So many people are there, and yet some of your audience probably wouldn't know them as the generations pass. Hollywood forever. Forever seems like an awfully long time. Yes, it is. Yes. One last serious sure. question. Yep. What sort of preparations are you making for the coming zombie apocalypse? Well, a lot of meditation and yoga, and that's just to keep me calm. And I felt like Day of the Dead was good. I went up in the middle, and I just had to meditate for 15 minutes because there were so many people there. But uh, we have started to build vertically, and so we just built a 5,000-crypt mausoleum, and then we have plans for another 9,000-crypt mausoleum. So the zombie accomplice, it's going to be very busy. I mean, we're going to have to bring in a lot of part-time help. It'll be like wristbands. Yeah, wristbands for in and out. And we did show um, Dawn of the Dead uh, two weekends ago, just kind of of a primer, you know, how to deal with a zombie. That's where they're all living in the mall with the zombies. So I think we're pretty ready. Yeah. Are you ever creeped out roaming around your cemetery at night? I um, <laughs> I've, I've never really gotten the creeps, and I, I, maybe I'm just not sensitive, or I'd like to think that, that if there's anyone there who's working for the dead people, it's me. You know, there's people who are definitely there for the living people and the grieving people. There's specific people now for the people that are there for entertainment, for cultural affairs. But I feel like it's always going to be my job as head caretaker to speak up for the dead people and think of, well, we're not going to do that because they don't like that. Well, how do you know they don't like that? Well, I feel like they don't like that. And I like to think that they're pleased with my job so far. So maybe they're not creeping me. Thank you.
The Hollywood Forever Cemetery is such a landmark. That it is. Don't go away. We'll be right back. The Happy Prince and Other Tales, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. Poet and dramatist Oscar Wilde thought it was the duty of every father to write fairy tales for his children. So when he had two sons, he wrote The Happy Prince and Other Tales. It was the story of a metal statue who became friends with a migratory bird and was first told in 1885 to a group of Cambridge undergraduates. Wilde believed his fairy tales appealed to grown-ups as well, especially when read aloud. He said, quote, They are meant partly for children and partly for those who have kept the childlike faculties of wonder and joy. In 1972, an animated version of Wilde's story, The Selfish Giant, was nominated for an Academy Award and shown as a 16mm film in grade school classrooms. The children were positively mesmerized. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded in the studios at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia and read by volunteers like me, Mike Heinerman. Hello, this is the actor Michael Emerson. It's not easy being one of the others, so if time travel or moving the island isn't an option and you're feeling sort of lost, try listening to IMRU. Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. And I'm Chloe Corcoran. Clive Barker is a horror novelist who came to prominence in the 1980s with a series of short stories, The Books of Blood. (laughs) And his fiction has been adapted into films, notably the Hellraiser and Candyman series. I am a man, and men are animals who tell stories. This is a gift from God who spoke our species into being but left the end of our story untold. That mystery is troubling to us. How could it be otherwise? Without the final part, we think, how are we to make sense of all that went before, which is to say, our lives? So we make stories of our own, in fevered and envious imitation of our maker, hoping that we'll tell, by chance, what God left untold, and finishing our tale, come to understand why we were born. Clive Barker, 
writer, artist, filmmaker, weaver of fantastic worlds. There's very little sex in the work of Stephen King. Right. Your books are very sensual, very sexual. Right. Why? Why? <laughs> sex is fascinating, isn't it? Sex is such a powerful force in our lives. And horror fiction and science fiction and fantasy fiction very often require as some portion of the narrative to drive a character into a place where he or she would not normally go. I cannot think of a more powerful motive force for that than desire and erotic love. And so very often, more often than not, my characters are not frightened into corners, but seduced into corners. And that's an important distinction. I mean, I feel as though the dark side, if you will, exercises in my fiction a great uh, attractiveness, a great seductiveness. I think actually in allowing the erotic element of, of the villain, the dark entity, to manifest itself, I'm simply following a much older tradition, a tradition which goes back to folklore, which goes back to mythologies of various kinds, in which which seem to own up more freely to the idea that what is um, attractive about the dark side is often tied in with its sexual power. You know, Dracula is an incredibly sexual figure. The devil, I mean, going to the ultimate force for darkness, as it were, is a profoundly sexual figure. And through the many... Uh, myriad uh, representations of the devil over the years that I've studied and read, sexuality and the sexual potency of that character are at the forefront. The whole idea that the monster is sexual and is somebody who will probably do something fabulously forbidden to you is part of his appeal. I think the most homoerotic image I've seen is the poster for Nightbreed right. with Craig Schaefer. Sure. I mean, that was a movie which was entirely about a subgroup of hidden individuals with their various rules and regulations and rituals into which this young man was brought and initiated, having left his girlfriend behind. Well, gee, what group can this represent? I mean, there was a certain number of people who at the time that that picture came out, completely understood what the picture was about. They tended to be gay critics. Straight critics were just completely in the dark. It was though the movie had to be decoded. And if you decoded it with a gay eye, then it was very clear what it was about. The villains were cops, psychoanalysts, and priests. The Nightbreed themselves were a hint of variegation. They were diverse, physically diverse, physically rather sexy. The whole thing was a, as gay a movie, I would argue, as, as Bride of Frankenstein. Speaking of that, is there a gay sensibility? For sure. I, I believe there is. And I've had this argument back and forth over the years, and the smartest person I ever had the argument with was Gore Vidal. And Vidal, of course, passionately believes that there is no such thing as a gay sensibility, even though I think he is a perfect example of it at work. I think that if you are brought up with something so essential to you, your sexuality, forbidden you, unexpressed, 
undebated, uncelebrated, and you live your life having to find codes in the movies that surround you, in the general culture and comic books or whatever, which allow you to find places of identification. Then from a very early age, you start to shape a different sensibility to the straight person, your straight brother, let's say, who sees everywhere around him in the culture images which perfectly reflect his sensibility. I was born in 52, a long time before Stonewall, a long time before the Wolfton Report actually made gay alliances legal in England. Um, so when I was brought up, it was a crime, and you were in jail for a long time, 20 years perhaps, for, for doing something that came naturally to you. If you define yourself, therefore, as unnatural from a very early age, even if you don't quite understand the vocabulary, if you define yourself as an outsider, because really you have no choice but to define yourself as an outsider. Everybody else has defined you that way. If you learn to be secretive, because it's easier to be secretive than to be open and honest. If you start to look around at the culture with a, a different kind of eye, an eye which is looking constantly for things which signal that there are people out there who are like you. I think if you're looking around for all those things and trying to shape up an opinion of yourself based upon buried clues around you in the culture, all of those things and a thousand others help you shape a different kind of sensibility to your straight sibling. If you're an artist and as an adult you start to uh, use the feelings that you developed as a child in your art, and every artist does that, every artist churns over these early feelings, then I think what you have is art which is shaped by gay sensibility. But the movement today is to assimilate, to be just as much like your next-door neighbor as you can, to have the adopted yeah. child and the picket fence. and Well, my choice is to be with a person who means so much to me and I just want to I want to wake up with him I want to go sleep with him I want to be able to talk with him through the day I don't know if it, I will go quite as far as the white picket fence but I do like to have roots and what we're trying to do together is put down roots emotional roots two trees growing so closely together their roots entwine and my husband has a child, and I do my best to be a good stepfather. Uh, but am I ever going to be like my mom and dad? Nah. You have had a number of gay characters in your novels, but I've read you've had trouble with the inclusion of gay characters in film. Well, yeah, I've had trouble with the inclusion of gay characters in, in novels. I mean, it's happened that way, too. So people are more comfortable with monsters than homosexuals. I don't think this comes as any great surprise to either of us, but it's absolutely right. I mean, I think that there's still an awful lot of fear in this town, far more than the articles in Out about Hollywood or whatever would tend to suggest. There's the fear that somehow or other, if you are thought of as a gay creator or as a gay producer or whatever, that's all you will ever be. You will be defined by that three-letter word. And my experience has been, though there is a little bit of a problem 
where that's related, it's not large. When I sign at a gay bookstore and the straight audience comes in, they don't care. They get their book signed. They get smiles. They get well-treated. That's the kind of ground root stuff that we need to do, I think, uh, as artists. It's not so hard. All I think you need to do is say, I'm a human being, and my work is intended for the largest cross-section of audience that I can make it for. Clearly, if I'm in uh, mid-America, if I'm in Alabama, it becomes more difficult. But I would say that in the last 20 years going on tour, I found it easier and easier and easier to mingle the audiences to... You know, it's so great, you know, Steve. You go to a signing and you see a gay couple and a family with their kids and and older folks and, you know, every color, every race just mingled in that line because they have a single passion. And the single passion is, yes, me, but also the fantastic, the imagination. The imagination is a great leveler because we all dream – We all have things which our imaginations throw up as means to explain ourselves to ourselves. And that's what this business is about. I think it's about pulling readers in from all sectors and saying, come join the collective dream. This has been an interview with Clive Barker. I'm Steve Pride. Well, we still have a couple of minutes, enough time for a last word. Angela Brown is a prolific book editor now, but as a queer little girl, puberty seemed like a battle with the devil. I'd lie in bed, the smell of snowball blossoms drifting into the room, the sheets dampened with sweat from my nine-year-old body, waiting for him to come, to fly through the window as I had imagined him for the past seven weeks. Not a man, not a human, the devil himself. Icicle, icicle, where are you going? Where are you going? My love affair with the devil erupted when Julie Mitchenfelder joined my fourth grade class. She had big ears and sweet brown eyes and long blonde hair. She had Jan's book smarts and Marsha's good looks. Quiet, gentle, funny, and above all, She didn't call me fat ass. I fell instantaneously in love with her. We shared a love for Andy Gibb and Three Musketeers bars. I always had a thing for the new kid, seeing them as a blank slate on which I would write the possibility of friendship. I never had a crush on a girl before, except for Goldie Hawn on Laugh-In, which was a bit more like a strange vibration right below my stomach. My attraction for Julie meant two things. One, I was going directly to hell. Two, I didn't want it to stop. I hadn't figured out why I was going to hell, and I didn't know why loving another girl was wrong. I didn't even know what the word gay meant. But my father, a Baptist minister, had drummed a bunch of Christian nonsense into me, and I knew a girl could never marry a girl. 
So I must be going to hell for this. I must be going to hell for this. My anxieties swelled when the next-door neighbor girl, Dee Dee, informed me that since I was unbaptized, the devil could take over my body at any point. What did that mean, take over my body? I'd lie in bed, terrified and excited about his arrival and what he had in store for me. Cherry-skinned, perspiring, sexy. The devil was everything I wanted and everything I was afraid to want. He made me slip my hand down there. He made me think of Julie. He made my mother turn the vacuum cleaner on at exactly the right moment. Or maybe that was God. Getting off, getting up, while they roll downstairs. Singing prayers, sing away. He's in my pumpkin PJs. After a few weeks, with no calling card from the devil, I grew agitated. He would make everything right. He would let me know that hell was an okay place that I shouldn't be concerned. One night, my mother and I were wheeling our cart filled with Little Debbie snack cakes, Coke, and Clorox through the aisles of Kmart. We passed a 99-cent bin brimming with faux wood shepherd's prayers. My mother fingered the discounted items, extracting the ones she would tack up on our kitchen wall. Something about the placement of these items next to a slew of Three Musketeers bars set me off. I spent the rest of the summer cussing out God in my head, spouting, Blank you, God! Blank you, God! Blank you, God! Followed by, I'm sorry, I'm sorry! Over and over again. This would go on for 30-minute stretches at 8 to 10 times a day. My mental activity was similar to that of an obsessive-compulsive counting the thousands of pills in the carpet, or to my mother wildly scrubbing the barbecue grill with a wire brush at 4 a.m. I had to cuss out God and I had to apologize. If I didn't apologize, I was going to hell. The idea that one could buy religion for the same price as four nougaty chocolate bars spurred a tornado of blasphemy and anger in me. It also made me want to kiss Julie on the mouth. Sometime later, I was watching the Joker's Wild and he appeared. Not Jack Barry, the stern host, but the devil himself. In the final round, a contestant pulls a lever on a big slot machine. To win the grand prize, usually a Chevy Nova, three Jokers must appear. At which point, Mr. Barry yelps, Joker, Joker, Joker. A typist from Reseda was up $350 when smirking Satan crashed her party. Dejected, she left the stage. She had only won a Montgomery Ward gift certificate, but I had won my freedom. He had come, the devil, and I was unscathed, untouched. He hadn't taken over my body. If he had, it sure felt nice every time Julie brushed against me in the cafeteria line. I still curl up under the covers at night, waiting for him to come. But this time, I want to thank him, or just say hi. Father Lucifer, you never look so sad. You always did prefer the drizzle to the rain. We know you have choices on your radio dial and appreciate you spending your time with us tonight. Thank you. Our thanks to IMRU's executive producer, Steve Pride, Rainbow Minute producers Judd Proctor and Brian Burns, and director of distribution and sparkle, Vosh Bodhi. 
Find us online at imruradio.org and follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio. If you're a web designer, social media expert, or just interested in LGBTQI community affairs and would like to volunteer with IMRU, please email volunteer at imruradio.org. And a little reminder, you can always hear our weekly show posted to kpfk.org. You can also listen to our podcast where we'll start presenting longer interviews and content too bodacious to broadcast. And if you want to see us, be sure to check out our promos on IMRU Radio Podcast on YouTube. Good Good night. night. Hey, would you like to know something interesting? I know what a lesbian is. Yes, I do. There's these two pretty ladies that live down the block in that green house with three dogs in the yard. And I asked them why there's no daddy at their house, and they said it's because they are lesbians. They told me it. Yes, and I seen them kiss each other goodbye on their porch yesterday. I wouldn't ask Mama if she knew what a lesbian was. She said she didn't know. So I told her. She knows now. I think I will change my name from Edith Ann to Lesbian. I think it sounds cute, and that's the truth. <laughs>